And we will continue our series begun last week called Side by Side. I'll explain what that is in a minute. We covered most of the notes that John has in his hand there, but if you don't have them with you, I will be reviewing those briefly. So anybody need those? And Joe has some here too. So get their attention. They'll get some of those to you. And while that's happening, let me remind you of some things that are coming up. This Saturday, all day, here, we're having a cleanup day. It's from 8.30 to 5 or 5.30. We're not asking anybody to come for the duration, but all that can for a portion. And we have tasks that have been laid out on a sign-up sheet that we hope to accomplish next week. And if you would indicate on the uh, sheet that uh, you can uh, come and what task or tasks you can do, that would be great. That's at the Information Center. Is that sign-up sheet floating around anywhere? It is? It's over here? So that's this uh, Saturday, and if for some reason you didn't over the last couple of weeks see the sheet and don't today, then let the folks know uh, know at the Information Center so we can show that to you and you can see what uh, what you can help with. So that's this coming Saturday. Ladies, one week from Friday, so all, two weeks from uh, this past Friday, is a ladies' event, ladies' late-nighter. That will be here. starts at 7 o'clock, goes to 11. And uh, they, you're asked to bring an appetizer for that, and you're all invited to a night of fun and gab and fellowship for and games and gab for that night. And then two weeks from uh, today is the date for your deposit for family camp. Family camp is in August, but we need to know uh, how many of the cabins we need to reserve. If we don't need as many as we've reserved, then we'll relinquish some of those. But we need to know that in the next couple of weeks. It'll be at Machendo Conference Center in Hillsdale. There are brochures for that on the Information Center desk. So you can see those uh, if you're not familiar with Machindo. But it is a very nice place. We've got three days there, the uh, three and a half, the 10th through the uh, 13th. And uh, we will have a great time, I'm sure. You can go online to their website, Machendo.com. And if you look at the Pine Ridge units, those are the ones that we have reserved. And they have pictures of those. They're very nice. You'll be able to see what the accommodations are. And we also have three of the Oakwood Apartments uh, so three apartments for whoever comes first, if you want a full apartment to uh, to yourself, and then the Pine Ridge units, were, which are almost like uh, apartments. All right. The series that uh, we're in today and for another five weeks, started last week for a total of seven, is at the uh, top right-hand corner of those pages that you received last week and then some of you got for the first time this week. At the top it says side-by-side. Side. And this is about the need for relationships in order for those who need help to receive help and those who have been gifted to help to dispense that help to others. So we are going to, we saw last week and we're going to see in some detail in the weeks to come that we all fit into two categories, that we need help and that we are helpers. So we're all in need need of help or needy but we're also helpers. We've been designed by God and gifted by God to engage in, in helping one, one another. And we saw last week from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, that verse 25 says, famously, do not give up meeting together. 
And I mentioned last week that we pastors love to quote that in order to beat church members over the head about being faithful to attend church. And that is a a passage that tells us that there is value and it's a command for us to do that. But it also gives us the reasons that we're to do that, uh, which are often missed. And it's let us encourage one another. And therefore, let us not give up meeting together so that we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds, the passage says. So the purpose for us coming together is not just to hear the message. And I pointed out last week, in our day, if the only reason that we were to come together is to hear the message, you wouldn't need to come together at all. Because with the technology we have, you can listen to the message without coming. You can get it online. You can download it on your uh, iPod, on your phone. And if that's all we're about, then you don't need to come. But worship is about more than that. It's about relationship. And our relationships are to help people grow in their discipleship and worship of the Lord. And that's why in the most direct passage in the Bible that tells us to assemble together, it gives the reason in the context of one another what we are about with one another. And so I emphasized last week that relationship is for discipleship. And I didn't say this last week, but relationship is for discipleship. And that means, among other things, friends don't let friends sin. Friends don't let friends sin. Now, the truth is you can't keep someone from sinning, but you can do your best. As a friend, if you're truly a friend, and if you're truly a Christian friend, then when you see someone sinning, then you see it as your duty, your God-given duty, to try to help that person. Galatians chapter 6 tells us that very thing. If you see someone caught in a sin, you who are mature seek to restore that person. Now, because in our friendships... We need people more than we love them. We don't do that. Because in our friendships, we need people more than we love them. We don't engage in that. Now, do you know what I mean when I say need them more than love them? Rather than that relationship being what I can do for this individual to move them toward Jesus. Rather than the relationship being that, the relationship is about what that person can do for me. And if the relationship is primarily about what that person can do for me, then I need them and I don't want to risk losing them by telling them the truth. And that's what so many relationships are, even so-called Christian relationships. But the truth is, relationship is for discipleship. And friends don't let friends sin. So we don't stand idly by and we don't confirm the person in their sin and we don't tell them, yeah, you're right. And yep, I know what you're talking about. Oh, listen, I hear you. You know, and you're just the nod in the head and you're just going along. And you're not helping. Friends don't let friends sin. And friends help friends with their sin. Because we all do. But we see this relationship as a means, a God-given means of us to help one another. Not only in the effects of sin, but in the sins that we that we commit. So just very briefly, I want to, if you'll turn to page, the first page of that introduction. 
I'll remind some of you and inform others who were not here last week that in the first line there, we say we, we all need help. That's part of being human. So we said last week we would need help even if sin had not entered the world. But then if you look at the second line and the third sentence, fourth sentence, we need help for our souls, especially when we're going through through hardships. Well, we need help for our, our souls and our souls now are tainted with sin. We have a spiritual problem. It was naturally the case that we were made to, to need help. But now we need help not only with physical things and growth naturally, but we need spiritual help as, as well. So we all need help. We were made as human beings to need help. And as sinners, we in particular need help. And then if you look about a third of the way down, it says we are all helpers. This too is part of being human. And we noted that God has gifted all of us in ways to be of help to each other. Now, if you turn to page two, this system of those who are needy, helping those in need, is the perfect system. If God used only, top of page two, experts and people of renown, some could boast in their own wisdom. But God's way of doing things is not the same as our way. I noted for you Isaiah 42 and verse seven last week. Where God says, I will not share my glory with another. I will not share my glory with another. And so God has made it, designed it, so that we are needy and that we get our needs met through him using needy people. And he gets the glory then. We ordinary people have been given power and wisdom through the Holy Spirit and are called to love others. From the beginning, we're compelled to move toward others rather than stay away. And another passage that I encouraged you to jot down is Romans 15 and verse 14. Romans 15, 14, where it says, I myself am convinced that you, brothers and sisters, are full of knowledge, full of goodness, and able to instruct one another, competent to counsel one another. Now, if we're going to, if we're going to do that, if we're going to be helpers to others, we've got to know Get to know others. So if you're the person who refuses to interact with with others, you're going to have to overcome that. You're going to have to engage with other people. You're going to have to establish relationships with others so that you have a foundation for getting to know them and finding out how you can help them. A lot of ways to do that. One would be get involved in a community group if you're not involved in one. That gives you a group of people that you will get to know in ways that you can't get to know them on Sunday mornings. But then even on Sunday mornings, if you're someone who's afraid, I mean like literally afraid of cafe community because it's loud and there's a bunch of people and somebody might talk to me. It's like, what am I going to say to them? I'm just not good at that. I'm just no good at it. I'm going to say something stupid. Well, look, we already know the deal. We all know that people say stupid things. I say dumb things. You've heard them. I say dumb things. You say dumb things. So let's just all agree right now. Why don't we all agree? We all say dumb stuff. So in the course of talking to each other, something's going to come out of my mouth, your mouth, that's dumb. So why don't we just laugh at it? Instead of being afraid of it and so focused on ourselves that we're embarrassed to be embarrassed. And so we stay away from obeying what God has told us to do. Let's talk to each other. And let's just make a deal right now that we all say dumb stuff. One. Two. Let's make a deal, all of us. I'm assuming everybody's in agreement here. That we're all sinners. We already know this. I said last week, I read a book about you. 
I've got a book and you're in it. And it tells me what you're like. So when you tell me you struggle with sin, I'm not going to go, wow, I, I heard there were people like this in the world. But I never actually met one. And here you are in the flesh. Lo and behold, a sinner. So everybody here is dumb and a sinner. Can we all agree with that? We're all going to say stupid things and we all do say and think and do and struggle with sinful things. So that being the case, then that removes the fear of people finding out about me. We already know about you. So we don't need to find out in general what you are. It's just the particulars of what it is you're struggling with. So you have to get to know each other. And what am I going to say to people? I might say something dumb. They might find out the kinds of struggles that I have and then think I'm a sinner. Um, and so what do, I, what do I say even in the conversation? Well, talk to them about them. You've heard me say this before. But if you ask people about themselves, you probably won't have to say another word. Because we all like to talk about ourselves. If you say, tell me about you. And so just over the years, I've just developed just some things that I say to people. Just, so how did you hear about us? That's one of the first things I say to everyone. How did you hear about us? How did you hear about CBC? Well, you know, I saw your banner out on Fort Street or somebody invited me. If somebody invited who invited you? Really, how long have you known that person? So, you know, you get, you get good at then just a staple number of things to ask people about themselves and then you get better at it as you go. And it's a must for us to get to know people so that we can know how to love people. Middle of page two, we began to see that we are needy. And your own neediness qualifies you to help others. Second Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. I gave that to you last week. Second Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. That God comforts us so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from, from God. But I also warned last week that if you are not availing yourself of the help that God has given you in the struggles that you have, then you're not going to be able to achieve the purpose for which God has allowed that in your life. You know, one of the purposes for which God has allowed that is for you to help other people. But if you don't avail yourself of the help you've been given with your stuff, then you're not going to be able to testify to others as to what God has done in your life. And so some are so stuck in continuing to to focus on their own issues and not make progress in their own issues with the help that God has provided that they're then not in a position to help to help others. And then you see under there, we are needy, that second paragraph. If you're in a group, someone openly speaks about a struggle, then we've all had this experience where others are willing to, to open up. So if you're willing to, to make that first move, you'll find that others will be willing to as well. And we say toward the bottom of page two, life is hard. And next to that, you might just write fallenness, fallenness, that we live in a fallen world. This is life in the fallen city. Sometimes we say that's life in the big city. This is life in the fallen city. And in fallenness, because of sin, we all contribute to it and we're all affected by it. And the kinds of things that fallenness affects are at the bottom of page two, and the list could go on much longer. If you turn to page three, we need to know what our things are and issues and struggles are, identify them, 
speak them to at least one other person, and most importantly, take them take them to the Lord. Now, since there are so many things in a fallen world that afflict us, it's helped to or, helpful to organize them. And you see the bullet points, the six bullet points on page three. Our hearts, our bodies, relationships, our work, spiritual evil, and the world, and then and then God. And I mentioned last week that if you were, if I knew how to do on my computer concentric circles, I would have made these concentric circles. The heart would have been in the middle. Then our bodies, our relationships, our work, spiritual evil. And then God envelops the, the whole of, of all of them. But we looked briefly at each of the uh, numbers two through six and then left our hearts for, for today. But our bodies and their frailty, our relationships and how those break down, our work, going back to a consequence of the entrance of sin into God's world. Our work is difficult. And God said that that would be, would be the case after the entrance of sin. Then on page 4, there are spiritual beings and the world itself. The world is comprised of fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values expressed in culture, that's the world. We're not talking about the earth. We're not talking about the place. We're talking about the system. And we're talking about the collection of fallen values that's expressed in culture. And those expressions are different in different places and at different times. But they are expressing fallen, sinful values. And you're surrounded by that and tempted by that, as am I. And then enveloping all of that is God. God is involved in in every piece of what's going on with our bodies and our relationships and in the and in the spirit world, God's involved in all of that. And there is nothing that's happening with your body, physically, in your relationships, in the in the spiritual world, in the world at large. None of that is happening outside God's purview and control. God is involved. So even what the devil does, unlike the TV preachers who suggests that there are these two equal powers, God and the devil, and the devil is is equally powerful with God. Hear this. God created the devil. God made the devil. And God has the devil's number. Did you know that? The devil can't do anything, nothing, nada, that God doesn't allow him to do. Not a thing. Do you remember that... When, uh, when in the book of Job, that before Job himself enters the scene uh, in a big way, there's the behind-the-scenes interaction between God and Satan. And the Bible tells us that Satan presents himself before God. <laughs> that Satan's got to give an account to God of what he's up to. He presents himself to God. And... He has to ask permission from God to do what he does to Job. He can't do it if God doesn't permit it. That's why Martin Luther was right when he said, even the devil is God's devil. There is nobody out there on the loose that's outside of God's control, including Satan. Further, when you get to the end of uh, history and the end of the thousand-year reign of, of Christ. Um, 
The Bible tells us that Satan is going to be loosed for a season. Now, why is he going to be loosed for a season? Because he's been chained for a thousand years. He's been chained for a thousand years. Well, who does the chaining? So, contrary to what the TV preacher types say, there is no, there is no equivalence between Satan and, and God. God made the devil and God controls the devil. And there is nothing that's going on in your life, including your physical body, your relationships, the spirit world, things that are going on in the world at large. None of it is outside of, outside of God's control. And so you don't have to help God. You simply need to obey God and watch God work in and through your circumstances. Now, the last item that we had on page two, excuse me, on page three, it's the first item listed, but it's the one that's literally at the heart of the matter is just that, the heart. And so I'd like today to talk about the heart. And at the bottom of page four, if you care to take any notes about the heart and its relationship to our neediness, then I would encourage you, I would encourage you to do that. But when we talk about the heart in the Bible, we're talking about the seat of the person. The seat of the individual. Who you really are. It is the heart of the matter. That's the way the Bible often uses the word heart. So, for example, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all and beyond cure. Who can know it? So it speaks of the heart being being deceitful. Proverbs 4.23 in the King James, Proverbs 4.23 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12.34. Matthew 12.34. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we speak, it is it is. Our hearts, it's, it's who we really are. That's the control center of the individual in the Bible. And so what we say and what we do are motivated by our hearts. So when I say things that I shouldn't say, I can't cover that by simply saying, oh, that just slipped. Well, it can't slip if it's not there, right? The only reason it slips is because it's already there. And the reason it's already there is because it came out of your heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth, the mouth speaks. So biblically, our motivations, our desires come from our hearts. And the Bible speaks to this in a number of places that I'll give you some more in a bit. But here's the way then our speaking and our thinking and our acting go according to the Bible. You have these four components. You have the desires of your heart that give rise to your thoughts, that give rise to your words, that result in your actions. So you've got your desires, thoughts, words, actions. Desires, thoughts, words, actions. Now, we tend to deal with the last of those first. We deal with the actions. 
so-and-so is doing X. So let's see how we can help them stop doing X. So if, if you know, you got a kid at school who's beating up other kids, how can we keep that kid from beating up other kids? Well, if our only objective is to keep you from physically doing the thing you're doing, then we'll just strap you down for the rest of your life. I'm not advocating this. I'm not saying I've never felt like it. Just saying. Some people's kids. But, I mean, if that's our only objective, we can keep you from doing this, right? Or we won't take that kind of extreme action, but what we'll do is we will try to teach you, this kid, to manage his anger. So instead of hitting people, do something else. And this is what, you know, psychologists do. You know, here's a pillow, beat on that. When you're at home, these are therapies. But none of that is dealing with the root of the problem, is it? Because the root of the problem is what's going on in in the heart. And the same thing is true for me, and the same thing is true for you in the things we say and in the things we we do. They all emanate from the things we desire and and think. Desire, thoughts, words, and and then actions. Further, it's not just our actions that we initiate that we need to be concerned with and the root of those, but it is our reactions to what others initiate. So what we tend to do is not only do we make the mistake of focusing on our actions rather than the root of those actions. When we're in relationship with somebody else, we focus on what they do rather than our reaction to what they do. And we're responsible for both our actions and reactions. The reactions are controlled by the same control center, the heart. So when we say, for example, this person pushes my buttons. Well, here's the thing. You've been cultivating and creating a bunch of buttons for a lot of years. That are attached to your heart. So what you mean when you say this person, this person, um, um, what did I say? What do you do with buttons? Oh, they push buttons. Okay. All kinds of things are going through my head. This person sews my buttons? That didn't sound right. This person, you see what I mean about saying dumb things? And, and I really knew it was pushes. I just said that to make you guys see what it looks like for somebody to say, to say dumb things. None of you believe that, do you? So this person pushes, this person pushes my, my buttons. And, and when we, we say that, we're immediately putting the target on the individual. Now, that individual may be doing things wrong, saying things wrong. But what we've got to do is look at our hearts and how they initiate action, but also how they react to the initiation of, of others. That's what God will hold us responsible for. And it's amazing what God will do in our relationships with one another if we will do that. So that's all in the context of us needing help. Us needing help. And we need help first with our hearts. Because the hearts give rise to everything else. And not only what the our hearts initiate, but also what our hearts react to. 
Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And then it says this. It, the word of God, judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And this is this control center of the person that has thoughts and attitudes. Now, before I move on with the struggles with which you need help, just ask yourself this question. Am I someone who is immersed in the word of God? Because if you're not immersed in the word of God, then you are not making use of this vehicle that God has designed to judge the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart. And you find yourself over and over again trying to fix what's going on in your life without focusing on the source of what's going on in your life. Your heart. And one of the chief means that God has given in order to, in order to remedy that is Scripture itself, the Word of God. Living and active, judging the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Now, when the Bible talks about, then, our active hearts, acting in what we initiate but also in what we react to, when the Bible talks about that, it often uses the strong language of idolatry. Idolatry. What's the, what's the relationship between my heart, my active heart that has thoughts and attitudes that then issue forth in how I talk and, and what I think and how I act, and idolatry? What's the relationship between those? Well, remember what idolatry is. We have too narrow of a definition of idolatry. We think of it as setting up some image and then bowing down to it, which probably no one here has ever done. But the Bible has a much broader definition of idolatry. Idolatry is anything that you value more than God. An idol is anything or anyone that you value more than God. And that's why the prophet Ezekiel could say in Ezekiel 14.3, Ezekiel 14.3, these men have set up idols in their hearts. They have got things that they value more than me. It is why. In the letter of 1 John, 1 John, 1 John has five chapters. You come to verse 21 of 1 John, chapter 5. So the very last verse of the entire letter. And here's how John signs off on that letter. Verse 21, the last verse just says this. My children... Keep yourselves from idols. That's it. That's how he signs off. And what's interesting, to me at least, is in the 105 verses that comprise the five chapters of 1 John, the word idol or idolatry is not used a single time. And yet he signs off after writing five chapters worth, keep yourselves from idols. So why does he do that? Did he have a senior moment like I did? And he's like, I don't remember what I wanted to say. Hey, stay away from those idols. See ya. I don't know what else to say. No, if you, if you go back and you read 1 John, 
you find that this instruction to keep from idols is actually quite in keeping with what he has said. Because in 1 John, as John is wont to do in his gospel and in his letters, he focuses a lot on what you love, what and who you love. He uses agape and love a lot. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. You guys remember that? For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the world and its desires pass away. You guys remember that, right? So notice it's about what you love and it's about what you desire. And that's why when he gets to the end then, he says, keep yourselves from idols. All right, so what are your idols? And if you want to know what your idols are, ask yourself this question and answer this question for yourself. My life would be fine if blank. My life would be fine if, now fill in the blank. If I didn't have this particular thing, if this person would clean up their act, my life would be fine if, fill in the blank. And that person or that thing or list of things that you fill into that blank are the things that you are interacting with on a weekly basis. You're interacting with that person. You're interacting with that circumstance. And you're allowing that person or that thing to keep you from obeying God. Keep you from, to keep you from being joyful in your Christian walk, for example. Does the Bible command us to be joyful? doesn't command you to be happy. doesn't mean you're happy that you're in the situation you're in. But it does command us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. And the one who wrote it knew what he was talking about because he's imprisoned when he set, writes it. And he hadn't done anything wrong. But he still 16 times in the four chapters of Philippians uses the word joy or related terms. 16 times in four chapters. So you can have joy, which is this. An abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life. An abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life. Not that the circumstance is good. The circumstance is lousy. But in the midst of this lousy circumstance, I've still got this abiding sense of delight that God is at work in this lousy circumstance. And therefore, I can have joy in it. And I can pray, Lord, remove this thing. Lord, fix this thing. But in the meantime, I'm going to have joy in you and I'm going to look with a sense of anticipation as to what you're going to do in and through me because of this person or this circumstance. But if your life is lived the way most of ours is, I would be okay if, and I'll be okay when, that thing or that person is gone or fixed. But not until. So idols are what we desire, what we love, value more than God. God. 
And that's why you all have heard me say that idols are often found, and I'm paraphrasing John Calvin when I say this, but idols are often found in wanting good things too much. They're often found in wanting good things, but wanting them too much. And how do I know if I want it too much? I'm willing to sin in order to get it or to sin because I don't have it. And if that's the case, you want a good thing too much. And your whole list of good things, almost nobody here has a list of illicit things. I say almost. I've got to leave the door open, okay? But most of us don't have a list of illicit things. Most of us have a list of good things that we just want fixed. I just want this person fixed. They're such a pain. Such a hassle. I just want my body fixed. I just want my circumstance fixed. I just want my finances fixed. And these are all good things to want your finances fixed and to want your body fixed and to want the other person to do the right thing. They're all good things. But idolatry is often found in wanting those good things too much. Martin Luther said this, God is whatever we expect to provide all good and in which we take refuge in all distress. Whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in, that, I tell you, is your true God. And one author has said it this way, idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. It may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. Tim Keller says it this way. Our idols are those things we count on to give our lives meaning. They are the things in which we say, I need this to make me happy, or if I don't have this, my life is worthless and meaningless. So if you care to jot down Colossians 3.5, Colossians 3.5, it says this. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. And in Matthew 6.21, Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be, will be also. Now what's interesting, when the Bible talks about um, uh, sinful desires or evil desires, it's a, it's a Greek word that literally means over-desires, over-desires. In fact, it's got the, it's got the Greek uh, uh, prefix uh, epi, which means over, and then uh, thumia, which is, which is desires, over-desires. It's a compound word that means literally over-desires. And so it's emphasizing that it's not usually the thing that we want that's the problem, but we want it more than God. We want to be married or successful or healthy. And those are, of course, all good things. But if my singleness or my failure or my illness make me bitter, then my desire has grown too big, bigger than my desire for God. And as a result, I cannot be content with God's control over my life. So one common way desires deceive us is 
we masquerade those over-desires, those idolatrous desires, as needs. I need this. So we don't say, I lust to be loved. Because that's one of the words for over-desires in the New Testament. But rather we say, I need to be loved. We take a good desire to be loved and we turn it into an idolatrous desire. We call it a need. And then God and his glory are no longer at the center of the way we look at things. Instead, I'm at the center demanding that people, in effect, worship me by giving me affection and affirmation. So someone has said it this way. When a good thing becomes a God thing, small g, that's a bad thing. When we take a good thing and it becomes a God thing for us. So Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45, Luke 6, 45. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. Out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Same thing that we have in Matthew 12. And so I ask you, friends, are you bitter? Reflecting on all the wrongs that you've had to endure? That's an accusation against God's goodness. Are you easily annoyed at other people's incompetence? That's a desire to be in control instead of trusting God's sovereignty. Are you angry? When you're angry at your circumstances, you're angry at God because at root you believe you deserve better and God hasn't given you all that you deserve. So how do I know that this good desire has become idolatrous? I'm willing to sin in order to get it or sin in the absence of of having it. But if we're going to have our needs met, this is all about us being needy at the root, what our needs are, what your needs are, what my needs are. If these needy people that we are are going to change, then there are desires that we have to continually turn from because we recognize that the root of sin is idolatry. And that the reality is I have my own idols, each of us does, our own separate sets of circumstances and struggles to which our hearts are active and to which they respond and react on a regular basis. And then we do, lastly, what the remedy is for this, and that is repentance. Repentance. Now, I've got 30 seconds. No, I don't. So repentance, I'll just say this right now. Repentance is not what you're thinking. Repentance is not just say, all right, I'm going to go to the Lord, I'm going to confess this, and I'm going to ask him to help me with it. It involves that, but it's not just that. Repentance, if idols are at the heart, literally, then repentance means replacing those idols. It means, repentance means literally a a change in the way we think. A change of mind that leads to a change of direction. And in the case of our idols, it's a change of mind about those idols. So that I then go in a proper direction. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, But I was able to look at my watch and see that it's straight up noon. It's time for me to quit. And I'll just tell you this and then we'll pray. But some of you were here about a month ago, six weeks ago, when I was teaching along. And I just had this sense that time was almost up. And I glanced at my watch and it said I still had 20 minutes. And I thought, I can't have 20 minutes. And I said, hey, what time do you guys have? And you all had five minutes of. And I looked. I said, my, my watch has stopped. 
And uh, someone in the crowd noted that I've got a bum watch, apparently. So I said, I'm having trouble with my watch. And on the following Wednesday on my desk, guess what was there? A new watch. I am wearing my new watch. Now, I just told you all that to also tell you this. I'm having some difficulty with my car. (laughs) Now, I told the deacons that story, what I just told you guys, and I gave that quip about, hey, I'm having some difficulty with my car. And believe it or not, what showed up the next day on my desk was a Hot Wheels car. And I'm not going to tell you who did that, but I will get Larry Castle back for, uh, for having done that. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us this week. Father, thank you for the blessings of this morning, the opportunity to gather as your people, to open your word, to sing praise to you, to give back to you. Lord, these are marvelous privileges that are afforded us And there are so many things that go with that, uh, that we're healthy enough to be here, that we have the freedom to meet without fear, that we want to be here, that we desire to be here. All of that is because of you, because otherwise we don't deserve to be healthy enough and we don't deserve this freedom. And we certainly didn't have the desire until your spirit worked and continues to work in our hearts. So, Lord, thank you for this privilege and help us each to see it as the privilege that it is. And then to be able to see from your word who you are and who we are and the roots, the real radical roots of our struggles. Lord, help us to then take those to heart, literally. And to this week, be able to focus upon how we have allowed our hearts to drift from you in the circumstances that you have sovereignly assigned as the first and major step toward a new direction, repentance. Help us to think on those things this week, to to make progress in those areas as we focus upon you and the beauty of who you are and what you are doing and not upon the difficulty of our struggle. And we ask you, Lord, to keep us safe, to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.